And now, podcasting from a two-person hot tub high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, PK, Rick, and their highly paid intern, Malort. Welcome to another special edition of the E-Town Lowdown COVID-19 pandemic. Today is Tuesday, February 15th, 2022. And I have two of my good friends, Pamela Dunley, the president and CEO of Elmhurst Hospital, and Dr. Michelle Mazier, who is the medical staff president at the hospital. How are you, ladies? Doing good. Looking outside at that beautiful blue sky. So looking forward to not getting the snow soon, I hope. Can't well, complain. 50 and rain tomorrow, and then I think we've, uh, we're in for a few inches of snow on Thursday. So... Get ready, but this is going to be over soon. We're going to have beautiful spring. I can feel it. The uh, Elmer St. Patrick's Day Parade, when everybody gets out on the streets, is two and a half weeks away. And, uh, and of course, this pandemic's going to be over before you know it, tongue-in-cheek, I say that. So as it, relates to the, <laughs> as it relates to the pandemic, I know most folks know that things are getting a little bit better, but from the hospital's perspective, can you give us the latest numbers? Absolutely. And I'm very excited because, you know, we've been through this roller coaster before, but at least we're on the downward swing of the roller coaster. So last time we talked actually was a month ago on on the 14th. So if we had talked yesterday on Valentine's Day, it would have been exactly a month. But uh, we had last time 89 inpatients at the time with six on vents and six awaiting results. And today I'm happy to say we have only 19 inpatients with four on vents and one awaiting results. So that's a massive improvement. And it's been steadily improving probably for the past two weeks this way. So I, I think that's really exciting. Of the patients in, in the hospital that are here, 13 of them are not vaccinated, six are vaccinated, and two of the six also had a booster shot. In terms of our... Uh, EMH deaths, I actually don't have that for you today. I know we have gone up in deaths, but they forgot to tell me exactly how many deaths we have. So we'll tell you that next time we meet. But we've had a lot of deaths. So it's not that there hasn't been deaths. It's just that um, it's just that the number of people coming into the hospital has um, slowed down. And, and I think the other thing is, you know, we do continue to have people that have uh, COVID, they're just not getting sick enough to be hospitalized. So last time, DuPage County had 173,000. This now, DuPage County has 203,000. Deaths in DuPage County went from 1,585 to 1,733. With deaths going from 32,356 to 35,998. And I do have hot off the press, thank you to Dr. Mazir, we went from 238 deaths a month ago to 277 deaths. So, as I said, we have continued to have deaths along the way. And uh, for the good news, we have also had a lot of discharges. Last time we had had 2,572 discharges. And to date, we now have 2,850 people who have gotten better and left and gone home. And the recovery rate remains at 97%. You know, it is quite a few deaths. 
in the last uh, month or so, but it's really just a numbers game, right? Because so many people caught the disease and it's, even though it's less deadly in the Omicron variant, it's, uh, it's just that many more people caught the disease, correct? Correct. So it's, it's really, it's about volume and that's why there's so many deaths. So you mentioned the roller coaster and over the last two years, almost, depending on how you count, there's, there have been, you know, maybe four spikes, maybe five, I don't know. A couple of the spikes were small, like the, the carnival roller coaster. And a couple were pretty large, more like the great America roller coasters. And this, in particular, this last one was an enormous spike. So my question is two pronged. And, and that is, do you think each of the spikes that have happened previously have been due to a different variant? Um, and then whether that's a yes or a no, is the Omicron variant liable to have its own second spike or, or is it, will it be a different variant if we get another spike? So I think we know that the spikes have been attributed to the different variants. And although we don't do the specific um, gene sequencing needed to identify the variant of COVID that someone has here at Elmhurst, we know that across um, the country and the nation that those sequencing tests are being done. And so what we count on is we count on our health departments to let us know what variant is prevalent. And so we do know that each of these, um, however many you want to attribute, four or five, three, four, five, um, however many um, waves there were, we, we think that each wave was due to a different variant. And as we're seeing the Omicron um, wave come down, yes, they have identified a new um, variant. It's actually a subvariant that they're calling stealth Omicron, um, which sounds ominous. <laughs> But um, so this stealth uh, Omicron is the new subvariant. The good news is that although, yes, it's been detected in at least 40 countries, it is not a um, variant of concern right now. Uh, when I looked it up earlier today, just to kind of see where we were with new variants, it's about 4% of the cases in the U.S. right now. I was kind of hoping that, you know, being as uh the medical community decided to use Greek letters. There's only 24 of those. So I thought maybe we'd, <laughs> we'd run out after 24 and I was glad they didn't use our alphabet, but now you've got a subvariant, the stealth Omicron. <laughs> so uh, that worries me a little bit. So we all know somebody out there and I know several folks that have tested positive for COVID more than once and not like in the same week, like months apart. So is it more most likely that those folks have uh, caught a different variant each time, uh, been infected with a different variant each time that they've tested positive? And does it appear that once you catch or are infected with one variant that you're probably not going to get that same variant again? Do we, do we know that yet? I, I think we... I think we assume that people that have had COVID more than once based on the majority have had several months span between their cases. And so say they had a case, were sick, recovered completely, and then several months later had another case. That was most likely due to um, the next variant. And when you match those things up, you see that that's when another variant, um, another wave was spiking. So um, I think that for the most part, people with reinfection have probably had more than one variant. 
I'm sure everybody knows a story about, oh, they had it, and then a couple weeks later they were sick again. But the little bit of the problem with that is our tests are so good that if you test positive for COVID, your test can actually stay positive for 90 days from that initial infection. Um, and that doesn't mean that you're contagious for 90 days. It just means the tests are so positive that they can pick up very small numbers of viral particles um, in the nose. Okay. If you if you can stick with me here, I you know I do my best thinking when I'm watching reruns of old old sitcoms and things like that. When when I my brain can kind of zone out because I've seen this episode 30 times, and I and I was thinking about a lot of women in particular. I w- I was thinking about that might want to get pregnant and are worried about getting the vaccine and what it might do to their a ability to get pregnant and B what it might do to that child once they once they do get pregnant. And I thought to myself, self, there obviously are a lot of bad things that happen when you get the disease. Shouldn't they be worried about those things also instead of just saying the only risks here are getting the vaccine to my child and my ability to get pregnant? And maybe they should be saying, well, maybe there are other risks that could be even worse because I've had the disease. Does that make sense? It it makes perfect sense. This is a conversation that we have time and time again with our patients. Um, We understand the pregnancy, you know, the pregnant state and the desire of the mother to do everything to protect her baby. What we know for a fact is that pregnant women are at high risk of doing poorly when they actually contract COVID. That's a fact. It's not, there's, it's not disputable. Um, they are at higher risk. They have worse outcomes. Um, they have really higher complications, including death, based on their, the fact that they're pregnant with COVID. They fall into that high-risk population. So, yes, you're absolutely correct. It's a known fact that it's more risky to get COVID when you're pregnant than non-pregnant. And when we talk about, so, so what would we do to prevent you from getting COVID? We've, we've proven that the vaccines with the booster are effective at preventing serious illness, hospitalization, and death. And we've seen tens of thousands of pregnant women who have received the vaccine and have done fine. The professional colleges that support OB-GYN and maternal fetal medicine feel very strongly that pregnant women should be vaccinated and boosted. Um, because the risk of getting COVID far outweighs any risk from getting a vaccine. So, and as it relates to uh, pregnant women that are delivering while they're COVID positive, do those babies tend to test positive for COVID or, or never or always? Or, you know, what are you seeing? So not always. Um, I can just speak to what we've seen here. We have definitely seen um, COVID positive babies. The good news about those babies is that most of them have either been asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, but we've also seen COVID negative babies born to COVID positive moms. And any um, babies that were born with COVID that had any long-term issues with the COVID? So not to my knowledge, um, and I think it would probably be too soon to say long-term. I guess it depends how you're going to define long-term, but in general, the majority of the children and babies that we've seen with COVID have had minor symptoms and have done very well. So those that have uh, suffered from COVID recently, and we assume that it's the Omicron, Omicron variant, um, do they tend to have 
the same type of long-term effects after they recover, whether they were vaccinated or not, that the folks who had maybe the Delta or the very early variants, the Alpha, the Beta, whatever were out there before? So I actually think that this is something that we're going to be learning about for years to come. Um, you know, there's lots of terms that are tossed around. Um, you hear post-acute COVID syndrome, chronic COVID, long haulers, sometimes they're called. Um, that just really the, the true definition um, is ongoing symptoms and clinical findings four or more weeks after the acute infection. Um, I think a lot of research is going to have to be done on which variant is causing these syndromes, um, what, what patient populations are at risk of getting these syndromes. Um, and the, the difficult thing is that, first of all, we're still learning about it, but the symptoms can be far ranging. Um, the most commonly reported symptoms are probably persistent respiratory symptoms like shortness of breath and cough. But some people report persistent fatigue, brain fog. There's reports of persistent abdominal pain, chest pain, headaches, body aches. So there's a lot of these lingering symptoms that people are reporting that I think we have um, we have a lot of work to do to figure out, you know, who's at risk of them and how do we treat them. We actually have a clinic um, at EEH that handles this specific patient population. And is it like an occupational therapy sort of a treatment? It depends on what the symptomatology is, because they bring in the specialist as well as it's in with our, within our neurology department. And um, the last time we spoke, I had asked you both about um, the existence of a new monoclonal antibody treatment that was seemed to be effective in most cases uh, with the Omicron variant. And I know that was hard to come by and may still be. What What's the status of that now? Are you able to get treatments, including the monoclonal antibodies that are effective against the, the current cases? We are. I, I will say this is something that we worked very hard on from the beginning um, when these new therapies were being introduced. And so we all along have been able, when allowed by the government, to get the actual um, monoclonal antibody and treatments and then to pivot when they decided that there's a new variant that is not um, treated by the old monoclonals. So currently what we have is citrovimab is the monoclonal antibody infusion that is effective against Omicron. And any patient that falls into the criteria that are listed in the EUA, which is wildly, wi widely available on the internet, um, is eligible to receive the infusion and they can get it in any of our emergency departments and our immediate care centers. So if, if certain treatments are more effective on, on various, various variants, I guess, different variants of the, of the uh, virus, um, how do you know when you're given a treatment whether that treatment's going to be effective if you don't know the variant that the patient has or you just kind of got to go with what, what the local health department says is prevalent at that point? Yes, I think we have to trust and rely on our health departments and the university settings that are actually sequencing the variants. And basically what they do is they will report um, the predominant um, variant in a region. So we rely on those reports to know what variant we're dealing with. And then we rely on them also to say, okay, you're now dealing with this variant and this old treatment is not does not work for it. 
So probably the most controversial question I'm going to ask you today, which relates to a lot of discussion in, in our community and across the nation, relates to uh, the fact that, you know, right now most most folks are being told that really what the vaccines do or, you know, keep you from dying. So if you look at the population that's young, children, let's say 5 to 12, that really aren't dying from this, what protection are they getting from the vaccine and do they really need it? So I will maintain that I have always said that the goal of vaccine was to prevent hospitalization, serious illness, and death. The goal of the vaccine is not to prevent people from getting a minor cold. But when we, and so when our children get COVID, for the most part, and I, I don't want to offend anybody who's had a kid that really was sick from COVID, but in general, the pediatric population gets a cold. Um, it's a cold, it comes with quarantine, it stinks for the whole family, but nonetheless, it's a cold. But by vaccinating those kids, what we are doing is protecting our other vulnerable populations. So our immunocompromised population that we don't know if their immune system is even responding the way that they should to a vaccine. Our elderly people or our people with multiple medical problems that even if they do the right things, as far as getting vaccinated and boosted, they're still at risk. So the more of our population that we have vaccinated, the less the virus will circulate and the less that those vulnerable populations will be put at risk. So that's why I think it's important to have the kids vaccinated. Is it is it fair to say that if you're vaccinated, part of what the vaccine does is keep the viral load to a minimum in your body and maybe it's you're not as likely to spread it? In general, most people that are vaccinated are going to have a, a less serious illness. So, yes. Okay. Um, so the folks that are getting their first vaccine today, tomorrow, last week, next week, is it the same formulation as the vaccines that in particular, our healthcare workers and first responders received uh, well over a year ago, or have they changed the, the, the formula of the vaccine since then? No formula changes. What you might notice is different dosing for pediatric population, and maybe one vaccine comes diluted and the other one um, we have to dilute internally. But the, if you think about it as active ingredients, there's been no change to the active ingredients in the vaccine. And and is there anything on the horizon that that you know of that, you know, like maybe next month or is it way down the road? I seriously hope that someone in the pharma world is working on a combo COVID flu shot so we don't have to get so many <laughs> shots throughout the year. But I don't, I don't have any insider knowledge on that one. Okay. I, you know, I know that um, the boosters, I heard a lot about it being, you know, effective for six months. And I just heard a report the other day that it's, it's pretty effective for four months and still somewhat effective after that. Um, are, are folks that have had booster shots eligible for an additional booster shot yet, or is that still to come? I think that's still to come. I think this is a good opportunity, though, to make an important distinction. So there are a subset of the population who are immunocompromised, and they get a third dose as a part of their primary vaccine series and then a booster. So their primary vaccine series is three doses and then the booster, but nobody to date is approved for that second booster yet.
So the, you you probably anticipate that might happen, though, right? Pretty likely. I do. I do. You said something. You said four months. I read an article yesterday that said two to three months. So I think that we're probably all heading to another booster at some point. And from a selfish standpoint, I'm but probably the three and a half month mark since I got my booster, and uh, I'm I don't look forward to catching this thing. So hopefully uh, there'll be another booster soon, if needed. Actually, hopefully this whole thing goes away. Um, have you have you heard anything recently about the accuracy of these home tests? that people are taking like crazy and are, are they fairly accurate from what you've heard and how accurate are the PCR tests that we hear about that are supposedly more accurate? Are you seeing that? So I think two things. Um, the home, the home tests are okay. They're definitely not as good as the PCR tests that we can do in a healthcare setting. Um, different testing platforms. And also you have to remember who is performing the test at home. It's not being performed by a healthcare worker. Um, whereas our testing that we're doing in the healthcare setting, you know, the staff is trained very well on how to perform the test, how quickly to get the tests on the machine in order to give us accurate results. If you look overall, most home tests are an antigen test. And in the healthcare setting, we're doing PCR tests. Um, the antigen tests are about 85% sensitivity, and if you compare that to a PCR test, they're over 95% sensitive. So I think the way to look at this is if you have a clinical picture that looks like COVID, but you're reporting, oh, I did a home test, it's negative, it's worth repeating on a PCR. Nice. So changing gears a little bit more to the uh, policy side at the hospital, um, with this latest spike, uh, has it affected the the patient's willingness to have elective surgeries, and is it has it reduced the hospital's ability to offer those elective surgeries, similar to what we saw in 2020? So when we had the spike um, and we were full, the hospital was full. We did have to uh, slow down some elective surgeries that would have been inpatient because we had no beds available. But since we are now back down, we do have beds available, so all the elective surgeries are happening. The thing that happens, though, is everybody's tested for COVID prior to an elective surgery, and if they come up positive, then we cannot do the elective surgeries. So unless there's some kind of emergency and it's, it's high risk, and then we'll, we will do it. But primarily, if they are positive for COVID, we do not do the surgeries. So that would be change, you know, what would impact elective surgeries right now. Other than that, we did keep all of the electives that were outpatient going. So we did have those surgeries happening even when we had our spike. Well, you uh, have heard that the governor is liable to, to uh, lift most of the mask mandate on, I believe, February 28th. Um, is it likely that the visitors' policies at the hospitals will be affected somewhat uh, for the better? Uh, or will that likely be down the road a little further? I think what you're asking um, is a couple of things. Number one, the visitor policy we had restricted quite a bit during the peak of this, this round again, and we have started to open that up. So everybody is able to have one visitor. We are moving to having two visitors starting, I think, Thursday of this week. Uh, so we are trying to open it up. Uh, masks and not having to wear masks will probably not be lightened up for the hospitals 
uh, setting or for our physician offices for a while yet because we need to be extra cautious in protecting our vulnerable patients and protecting our staff. So I do not imagine, even if the governor lightens mask mandates for other places, that it's going to impact us immediately. It will be much further down the line. But visitors, we are trying to lighten up now. And I think in the past, when there's been no mask mandate, in most places, the hospitals have still been under that. So I guess that makes sense. Um, merger, so you're, what, uh, six weeks in right now? How's it going? And uh, how are uh, the folks adjusting over there? Well, I think um, it's going fine. You know, we're all we had to deal with this this uh, rise in the number of patients we had right in the beginning of our merger. So we were all just focusing on making sure that our patients were well taken care of, that we had enough staff to, to make sure we took care of our patients. So our attention has been on that. Um, we are beginning to look at you know um, what we do versus what our new um, whole organization does in terms of you know our policies, our, um, our you know, outcomes we get, and just learn from each other, but nothing is really changing. I think we know that this merger is about community hospitals that stay responsive to their community. And so our doctors and our staff here are focused on the community. They're not too worried about this merger. They just want to make sure that they have what they need to do their jobs and the support they need to do their jobs. And, and so that they have and things are going along. And I think, Rich, I can speak from a clinician standpoint. Meetings that I've been involved on have really been open dialogues and sharing of information, really to learn from each other and see what, can we learn something that you're doing better than us, or can we teach you something that we think we could help you? So it's it's been very, um, very well received. Great spirit of cooperation, it sounds like. Um, I know at one point you had over 100 COVID positive patients in the hospital. What What approximately... Um, is your capacity, and, and I guess that's probably, a, I'm sure if you, if you had something really go wrong, you could take more patients, but what do you, how many beds do you generally have at the hospital? And when 110 are filled, that's really got to make a dent. So we are licensed for 264 beds. We have been up to 297 patients in the hospital. I uh, have a lot of flexible space that I can use as inpatient beds. Uh, they're flexible space like it used to be our pediatric unit that we now call our centralized admission area. That can become an inpatient, temporary inpatient area. We have a, a, one of the pods in the emergency department can be a temporary inpatient area. We have an outpatient surgical suite that can be a temporary inpatient area. And we have a cath lab holding area that can be a temporary inpatient area. So we are lucky that we have a lot of flexible space and that as soon as we do not need them, they go back to what their primary use is, but we are here to take care of our community and so we make sure that we meet the demands. I don't know how much more I could go than the numbers we've gone to, but um, we're very creative and we had actually gotten offered some, some uh, temporary like pop-up rooms that was part of the state's McCormick Place COVID treatment center. They had pop-up rooms that they gave us some so that we could do that here if we needed to. We never did have to use those. So we'll always be creative that way to make sure that we have the right number of staff and the right number of beds for our community. 
Wow, I can't believe how much you're stretched if you're nearly at 300. That's amazing. Um, last question I want to ask is related to staff. Um, how are they doing and, and how are your staffing levels? I know that's been a problem, keeping the staffing levels where you really want them. Yes, actually, now that we're not in this major upswing in COVID, because not only did the community get it, but our staff got it, so a lot of them were out sick. And then a lot of them were burned out and, and tired, and um, there was problems with staffing. We managed. A lot of people did overtime, did extra shifts. We're very lucky that we have such a great loyal staff here that have helped us out. We've actually used a lot of agency that we don't normally use, and I think we're beginning now to be able to get rid of some of the agency. Um, but we did longer-term contracts with them. And then we were very, very fortunate in the last uh, few weeks that the state identifying that there's staffing issues was willing to um, send some agency staff over to us to help us out. And so we were supposed to get approximately 35 varied type of people, some nurses, some respiratory therapists, some PCTs to help us. And um, we got not quite that. I don't. I think probably around 20 right now. But we, even though our volume has gone down slightly, we still have needs and holes in staffing. And we want our staff to take a break instead of working all this extra shifts. So we're encouraging them to, you know, not work extra shifts and take some time off while we have this extra help here. And then we'll, you know, when the, they're gone, which they will be here about six weeks, then um, we will go back to hopefully being at regular staffing levels for staff and they won't be asked to do so much overtime. Well, ladies, I would ask you to stay off roller coasters. We don't want any more of these spikes. <laughs> We're all finished we with agree. them. You guys are finished with them. I'm finished with them. Everybody's finished with them. Um, I, I, I hope when we talk a month from now, uh, you're not still dealing with another spike. We appreciate that. We're, we agree with you. We know that everybody's tired, and we just ask that a little more patience here in the hospital because we still have to be very careful. Even if everybody gives up all their masks outside the hospital, in the hospital, we still have to be careful. So we appreciate everybody being cooperative with us. Great advice, and thank you, ladies. Appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. The E-Town Lowdown brought to you by the wonderful folks at the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra featuring the biggest bass drum in the world at nine feet in diameter. Yes, you heard that right. Nine feet in diameter. This has been a special presentation of the E-Town Lowdown.